Six? Awesome. Let's look over at 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. This is another passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to start off reading here in verse 34. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 says, Women should remain silent in churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Boom. It's done. I don't want to hear a word from the mouth of any sister for the rest of the day. Now here's the problem. <laughs> when you hear this verse, or if it's presented to you in a study, do you know how to respond? Do you know what to say? See, the great complication is this. If we don't figure out what this verse says uh, and apply it as the Bible says it should be applied, we can easily, we're actually, we're not, we won't even be accused of, we'll actually be completely ignoring the Bible, ignoring God's word. The very opposite of what we say we do. But at the same time, the same principle applies. We need to understand, we believe this is God's word, and we, we should know how to explain it to people, right? We must look at the context of this passage, and we have to compare it to all the scriptures that talk about women and their roles in the church. It's these principles that I want to share with you that allows me and should allow all of you to never be afraid. Whenever someone wants to challenge you, and the first thing they say is, well, look in the Bible, you are already winning because they're in your territory. <laughs> Whenever someone who's an atheist or someone doesn't believe in God or somebody's issue said, well, let's look at the Bible, I'm like, okay, let's do that. <laughs> That's never going to intimidate me. They think they're intimidating you. See that scripture? What about that? I'm like, let's talk about it. Because as long as we talk about the Bible, you're in my territory. Yeah. You're in my house. Yeah. And trust me, I'm not scared when I'm in my house. Yeah. And neither should you be. There are, there are many, many relevant scriptures. But the, but the following scriptures are very, very relevant. And I'm going to go through them. There's, there's ten. Again, if you'd like to get a digital copy of these notes, if you go to drbrianperkins.com backslash now, you can get your own copy of this stuff yourself. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 316. It's what it talks about women praying prophesying with head coverings. That's one relevant scripture. The other one is the current one we're looking at. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 to 35, which is about the silencing of wives of the prophets in the churches. Number three would be Galatians, chapter 3, verse 26 and 29. This is a passage that talks about the difference, or that there is no difference, when it comes to salvation. Uh, these twin passages, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to 23, I mean 21 to 33, and Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. These talk specifically about the roles of wives and husbands in marriage. One was kind of really, really long, and the other was kind of the Cliff Notes version. Number six would be 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. 15 
talks about general principles of dress and attitude of women in the kingdom. Number seven would be 1 Timothy. Timothy is a lot of stuff to say. Mm -hmm. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 12 talks about elders and deacons. 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verse 1 through 16 talks about treating others, how we treat others and widows. The last two, number nine, Titus two, verse four and five, give specific teaching for men and women by age. And then finally, number ten is First Peter three, verse one through seven, gives attitudes of wives and husbands in marriage. Now that's just the list. I'm what I'm going to try to do today with Shan is to go through these um, very, very systematically to get to draw a picture of what does the Bible paint about women. So when we hear passages or someone says something, we can understand the context or the backdrop in which these things are being presented. Alright. So point number one is this. Let's look at the beginning. Point number one is let's look at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It actually says the same thing in um, Genesis 5, verse 2. But this is important. If we're going to talk about what does God, how does, what does God think, how does God feel about women and their importance in the kingdom or, or their role in the kingdom, let's look back to the very beginning. Yeah. The very beginning, the Bible says that God created both male and female in his image. And that neither gender was greater or lesser in their creation. Matter of fact, you can almost make an argument that women were created last, therefore they're kind of the apex of creation. <laughs> but certainly were not created lesser, or certainly were not meant to be treated uh, lesser of importance. But they are created in the image of God. Now, there's only one thing in creation that's been created in the image of God, and that's humanity. But God said there's two flavors of humanity. There's male and there's female. We find out kind of the why when we look deeper in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2 and verse 18, the Bible says, this is God speaking to uh, the first man, Adam. And he basically tells him in verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the Bible proceeds to talk about how God had created all these uh, different animals and, and, and the man named all these different animals. Drop down to verse 20, it said, uh, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and the wild animals, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Okay. This is really, really cool. Um, the, the word that's translated as su suitable helper in Hebrew is a word, it's two words. It's called Edzer Kenegel. Answer okay. Kenegel. It basically means I will make a help that is corresponding to him. Mm -hmm. Literally, the phrase in the Greek means that they, he, this, per, this, this, this thing that I'm, this person I'm creating, is both equal and adequate to him. Mm -hmm. uh, that the woman was meant to be a counterpart or a counterbalance. That she was meant to be an indispensable partner. Amongst all of the other animals that God created, there was no one 
who would be as unique as the woman, but for the woman would be made as a suitable helper for him. Now why is this important? It's important because what it means is based on creation, there we are not very different. I mean, like let's just be honest, right? Men can't carry babies, women can, and that's about it. <laughs> uh, we are not very different. And so when someone says, well, I just think that women should just be submissive because they're inferior, that's an incorrect argument. Mm. They were created by God to be a suitable helper for the man. They were created by God to be a partner, a corresponding partner mm -hmm. in, the act, in the work of God's creation. Mm -hmm. um, I like this because I like to help, as most of us in here, well, women, we do. Um, but I even like even the term Ezra because I even went to do a deeper study and it says that um, there's two root meanings, power and strength. And I'm like, wow. Sometimes we can think, oh, a helper is somebody who's an assistant. That's a very, you know, demoted position or role. But it's not. To be a helper means that we have a lot of power and strength. And I'm the kind of person just to let you know, I don't have to be in the front out there, you know, taking all the credit, doing all the work. But I feel like it's much more powerful and much shows much more strength when you're working behind the scenes, when you're doing the work. And you know, in, in, in this role as a woman, I feel like with that, I love it because it's not me giving the credit, it's giving the credit and honor to God. Because I realize this is me holding up my husband's arms, but when I look at it, it means that I'm holding up God's arms. I'm glorifying him in each and every way. So when I'm a helper to my husband, or helping to other people, then I'm helping God. And that helps me to, to be able to accept my role as a woman and say, man, it's power and strength in what I do, and I don't need to let anybody or anything tell me differently. Now, the thing that's so cool about this is this goes this goes directly to the second point, which is uh, the, the point about salvation. And this is the scripture that I mentioned earlier about Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, my second point is identical in salvation. Listen to this passage. Ah, this is amazing. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 29, Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The reason why this scripture is important, I mean, it actually is amazing, is because Paul, as a Pharisee in his day, would have said the famous phrase, you know, thank God I'm not a Gentile, that I'm not a slave or a woman. Right? That was like the, the slogan of the day. I don't want to be a Gentile, a slave, or a woman, because that, of course, is like being close to being a dog. And we see this. When you read the scriptures, you'll see that. The way that the Gentiles, the way that the Jews of the Gentiles, they were almost less than human. The way that they would have looked at someone who was a slave, they were like, you're owned by another person. You're like, you're, you're like chattel, you're like a puppy. And then when it comes to women themselves, there was definitely a demeaning of women. Paul says that, that when we are saved, that we are heirs of the same promise in Christ. Therefore, this passage says that salvation is a gift that's freely, equally given to both. And I want you, I, want, I really want to make, make sure I'm clear what I'm saying, what I'm saying here. The fitness to do anything in the kingdom 
is equally distributed amongst the genders. What does that mean? Well, that means that there are women who can speak just as well as guys. Mm -hmm. That means that there are women who can lead like guys. That means that there are women who are gifted in service, women who are gifted in, uh, 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 in, 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 in giving their hearts or being uh, generous uh, in administration just like brothers. There is no difference of gifting. I think that's really important because if you feel like, well, listen, the only way to be important or whatever is to, you know, to, I don't know, uh, to be a guy, then you can easily feel demeaned. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, as we, as we go around and we talk, there's some people who feel like, well, unless I'm married, I'm not important. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm not a guy, I'm not important. Mm -hmm. I guess if I'm a white, married guy, I'm like the man. <laughs> and yet in the kingdom, all distinctions disappear mm -hmm. because you're all one in Christ Jesus and there is no difference. Mm -hmm. I think that's super important. Again, from a biblical point of view, Paul is, is not preaching a chauvinistic point of view because he's accused of that. But he's carrying on the tradition that we see in Jesus, right? Jesus was all about women. I mean, Jesus showed off with women. Yep. Who was the first person to discover Jesus at the tomb, right? Yep. It was a woman, right? Yep. Who did Jesus appear to first when he was resurrected? It was a woman, right? Who announced his birth first? It was a woman who was a prophet. Jesus went out of his way to show that women were just as important to God and that they were represented around him. Um, I know that there are thoughts out there um, in the world that there is an inferiority, superiority idea as far as when it comes to women versus men. And I feel the thing that we need to do away with is that in the God's kingdom, it is not. And this scripture really represents that, that we are created the same. And I think that what Brian even said, just even as women, we don't even have to be wise. Oftentimes we think this only applies to wives. No, as women, it's so very important for us to find out what is our gift? What can we do to help add to bettering ourselves, bettering God's kingdom, bettering whatever we do, whatever God has called us to. I think that for me, I'm always trying to figure out, okay, what, what am I good at? Or what can I become better at? What can I learn to, to do that I'm not already doing? And that helps me to feel secure and confident in God because God has no limits. But I think that if we allow ourselves and give in to the stereotypes that are put out there for women, we put limits on God. And we put limits on the roles that women are supposed to do for God or just in, in, in society. So I feel like it's very key. There's even a book, and I forgot to bring it. I had many books because this isn't my only lesson. And I forgot it, and it's, I don't think it's even in print. It's called a woman's, um, a woman's Leader's Handbook. And this book is great because it goes and it allows you to take surveys. And you probably can find it online. There's surveys online that you can do to say, what is your gift? whether it be um, to serve others, whether to be to encourage others, whether it be just to, to preach God's word and, or just to speak the truth, whatever your gift is, be good at it. I think that that's so very key, but I think it's us making sure that we're looking at the scriptures and we're letting that be our guide and not the world yeah. putting negative thoughts in our hearts and in our minds that there's this inferiority, inferiority superiority complex that we need to carry around because we don't as women. Amen. Amen. You know, one of the things that I think is um, amazing to me is when you have an opinion about something and then you, do, you study the Bible and it changes your opinion. You're like, oh, I was wrong. 
And I think I see something a little bit better here. And this gets into my third point, which is the role of marriage. You know, for years we would ask me, well, what do you think about, you know, this whole idea about marriage and women and, and kind of their roles? And, and I would say, well, maybe, you know, I don't know, uh, God wanted somebody to lead. Maybe because of the, 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 the curse uh, in the Garden of uh, Eden that, uh, that the roles are the way that they are. And I got a chance to go back and do a deeper study. Uh, what I discovered was that that's actually not the way that the Bible describes this. Um, the passages that talk about uh, the role of wives and husbands in marriage, um, again, are Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3. But I want us to look at Ephesians 5 for a moment. This is really important. You know, marriage was created by God. But very rarely have people asked themselves, well, why did God do this? I mean, you know, honestly, sexual uh, uh, reproduction is not the only way for a species to continue to move forward, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we could just be walking along one day and then drop our arm off and that becomes your kid. You know, um, and there are species that do that, right? Why don't we do that? Um, what I think is really interesting, I want to read this passage and then I want to talk about this for a moment. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands, your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water from the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but, he, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery I'm talking, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So this passage talks about the dynamic, not of women in general, but it gets a little more special here. Talking about specifically in marriage. But there's a principle here that I think we can apply it on a larger scale. The Bible says that there needs to be an attitude of mutual submission to one another. Now, when we do marriage counseling with people, I tell people all the time, whenever I, as a husband, focus on my role, I do really well. Whenever I, as a husband, focus on Shan doing her role, I don't do so well. Well, my, if I have to always tell her, this is what you're supposed to be doing. This is how you need to serve me. Somehow, I'm not really happy. She's definitely not happy. <laughs> but whenever I say, well, let me focus on my role. Let me make sure that I'm doing what God's commanding me to do. I actually feel much more at peace. Because I have no control. I can't control her. But I can't control myself. Yeah, the Bible talks about a concept of mutual submission. Because you are made equal... And because you have you share equally in Christ, the submission must be both ways. Mm -hmm. I actually think that's really important. I yeah. think a lot of people don't get that. Yeah. They feel like no submission needs to be for you. That's not what the Bible says first. Mm -hmm. The Bible says it needs to be mutual submission. Absolutely. You focus on you, you focus on you, and when you come together, God will bless it. Mm -hmm. Because of this, when the union comes together, God wants there to be order. Mm -hmm. And so they use this terminology of head. Right? And this is used uh, all throughout the New Testament. 
But it goes, it all goes back towards that original creation event. That God created the man and he gave the man a job to do. And God saw that it wasn't that he was by himself and he couldn't get the job done by himself. <laughs> That's still very true today. I think it's often wives get under-treated for what they do. And it's and I can say this, every guy who achieves something great who is married, trust me, it's because of their wife. They might not tell you that, but it is. Because you cannot do great things if the person behind you is not also doing great things. Yeah. We all know, right? I mean, you, you go where you go because of the people who are around you. If the people around you are knuckleheads, they're going to pull you down, right? Mm -hmm. The people around you are doing great things, they're going to push you up. Mm -hmm. In the exact same way, marriage dynamic is, is amazing. Mm -hmm. The Bible says it's a mystery. Jesus gives, Jesus gives uh, us an example here. He says it's like the church and Jesus, right? Which Try to explain marriage by saying the church and Jesus also just seems confusing. Uh, a lot of times I'm like, okay, uh, the church of Jesus. Uh, yep. I have an explanation which I think is actually also tough, but I think we can get it. <laughs> One of the things that I had a chance to study out was the Trinity. What do we know to be true about the Trinity? We know that the Trinity says that it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know that the three work together as one, and there is unity, such that we believe that there is one God. He expresses himself in these ways, but there is one God. Why is that significant? Because the Bible says that when you're married, you're one. Marriage emulates the triunity of God. We don't understand how the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit work together. We don't get that. But marriage is the closest that we can come to understanding it. Because the Bible says that you're one. And yet, in being one, someone has to take the lead. We know that it's the Father, right? But does that make Jesus less than the Father? We know that the Spirit of God was sent by the Son and the Father, but does that make the Holy Spirit less than Jesus or the Father? Of course not. He has a role to play. He's playing that role, but he is just as much God as any other part of the God here. In the exact same way in marriage, someone has to lead. The Bible says, husbands, I'm commanding you to lead. Part of this could be because God knows our sinful nature is that we have to let a woman lead. Mm -hmm. I'm fired up just laying on the couch. What are we eating tonight, honey? Where are we going tonight, honey? Awesome. <laughs> Whatever you think, I'll do. I have no problem doing that. I grew up with strong women. I think strong women are very attractive, personally. I married a very strong woman. We gave birth to a daughter who's a strong young woman. <laughs> and yet God also recognizes that he put in the nature of women the desire to be loved and the importance of that to fulfill them. And so the role of husband, love, and lead, wives, submit, and respect are super, super important. It's actually a part of the DNA that's been imprinted upon us in our creation. And this was done for the healthy functioning of the family unit. Okay? Now, I want to say, I wish I could stand up here and say that even with the first scripture where it says submit, just that word. I've not always loved or embraced. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I'm the only one because uh, it was definitely put to the test. Like, obviously, I love my husband, but the, I remember the question being asked to me by the sister who was discipling me at the time because she knew that Brian was going to propose uh, to me um, for marriage. And she said, are you willing to submit and make Brian's dream your dreams? And I looked at her. And I said, mm, I gotta get back to you on that one. <laughs> and I did. I took a couple of days. I really had to go and pray because I was like, what does that really mean? What am I giving up? 
And I realized what it was is I had a lot of fear um, and a lot of, you know, worry and insecurity that I wouldn't be taken care of, that I wouldn't be loved. And I realized that even as a disciple, it was still a struggle. And so I went back to her because I, you know, came to my sense. I was like, well, the truth is that, you know, if I marry anybody, whether it's Brian or not, I'm going to have to give up those things. And so I was like, hey, man, let it be him. He's a spiritual, awesome man of God. But I worried about those things. And um, even, too, and I, I think uh, along that, I worried about the misuse of his authority because I realized that some, there was a price to pay in that. And I had to really count it. But then I had to go back and say, what's the real deep issue? It's fear and me not trusting in God. And I realized that, you know what? If I trust in God, he's going to take care of me. He never leaves me nor forsakes me. He tells us that time and time in his word. And I had to realize that, you know, submission isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because um, it means that, one, we're not in control. We only, you know, deceive ourselves to think who we are. But it's a matter of giving God control. And that submission isn't when we're in complete agreement with what our husbands do or what the brothers we lead do or whomever, submission is that you do it because you trust God is going to work through it, whether it's for the good or whether it works out bad, that you simply trust God. And so I'm like, okay, God, this is hard. It, I can't say that I've overcome. There's still times where it's hard for me to submit, but I have to go back to these scriptures. And I'm like, okay, you know what? One day uh, I can be mad, but I'm, I'm really mad at Eve. She's the cause of this. I'm like, when I get to heaven, I got something to talk to Eve about. <laughs> but I realized, hey man, I need to forgive her, move on, God has. But I'm like, girl, what were you thinking? You gotta help a sister out. Um, but yes, yeah, so I realized that it's a good thing, it's not a bad thing. One of the things that I always laugh about um, about that particular story is when the Bible talks about how God told Adam, uh, do not uh, eat from any tree uh, the tree specifically of life and in my tree of good and evil. And so he didn't. He actually didn't do that. Uh, and then when he, when he was talking to the serpent, um, Adam was there. I actually says he was standing there. So he was just basically watching her have this conversation. <laughs> and um, when she said, oh, I guess it is good. And she ate some. He watched her do that. And the Bible says he gave some to her. He said, okay. And basically he let her leave. Yeah. And so it was his fault. Mm. We get all mad at Eve, but she wasn't being led well. Um, it is not easy to submit to a sinful person. It is not easy to lead and be responsible for a sinful person. So this mutual, this idea of mutual submission, we can't stress enough uh, for the role of a family unit. This brings us to our fourth point, um, and it's kind of the most important point. It's function in ministry, which is you know kind of the name of the show, right? Women's role in the New Testament. What is the function of ministry? I want to just I want to just let you know the, the answer is it's interdependent partners. Mm. But I want to describe what that means. Amen. It's interdependent partners. Partners who are not independent of each other, but they're interdependent, they're connected, they work together. Since the the family is the basic unit of the church, right? When we go out and look at churches, what we talk about, and sometimes you'll hear say, what's the membership of your church? What's the membership of your church? Okay, amen. You can show off a membership. Ideally, what we're talking about is how many households do you have? Okay? We talk about households and we talk about giving units as far as contribution. We talk about households. When you look at the Bible in the New Testament, it uses that phraseology over and over again. The church that meets at Sunday Church's house. The church that meets at Sunday Church's house. Households. Here's my question. Who leads households? 
Well, you tell me, what do you think? Well, God leads everything, right? But ultimately, the men lead their household. So when all the households come together, who's leading? A man. Is it because he's the smartest? No! Is it because he's like the most spiritual? No! But it's, it's a continuation of the basic building block of the church. The basic building block of the church is not the member, but it's the household. We want, we want whether you're single and you have a singles household, or you're married, or you're a single parent with your kids, or you're married with two kids, you all represent households. Usually, typically, they're led by the father. But there are households that aren't led, and that's totally fine. It doesn't matter who leads your household. But it does make sense that when the church comes together, it's going to be led in the same typical fashion mm. that the basic unit is led by. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not meant to marginalize and say that you're not able. It's just a continuation of what was started on the most fundamental yeah. level. Oh, on the most fundamental level, families and households are led by the, the husband or led by the father. Mm. And so when we look at passages that begin to talk about this, one is over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 1 through 12. This is the passage that talks about eldership and deacons. This, this is really interesting. It says in verse 1, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Mm. Who, now the overseer must be above reproach, faithful to his wife. Drop down to verse 4. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. And if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Mm. Dropping down to verse 8, it says in the same way. Deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep the hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. The deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. But what are these passages saying? They're actually saying a, 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 a couple of things. No, number one, there is an expectation that elders in the church, along with their deacons, are married men. I noticed that. It's very clear. Both of them lay that out. But interestingly enough, it also says that there is a requirement and there's expectation in the lives of the women showing that they have a role in leadership too. Mm -hmm. Did you catch that? Mm -hmm. And here's the other thing I think is interesting. It's the same qualification. Mm. Worthy of respect. Mm. Now, obviously, there's differences uh, because of the roles that they play. So the kind of the qualifications may they're they're they're, little, they're a little bit different as they're written, but they're there. Mm. The role of elder, as far as the teachers can 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 see it, is, well, it seems like it is absolutely a role for the men. Mm -hmm. But the Bible doesn't prescribe. The Bible doesn't prescribe female deacons, but it also does not prohibit female deacons. As a matter of fact, it allows women to do the things that deacons do. That's actually revolutionary. And if you look at Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Phoebe seems to have served as a deacon in the church in Sincrea. As a matter of fact, one of, one of the arguments that we've heard, uh, I've heard, which I think is pretty cool, when they talk about what is the justification for a woman's ministry leader, uh, the qualifications would be very similar to the qualifications of a, of a deaconess or a female deacon. Right, worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, trustworthy, temperate in everything. Because they have a role model and they have a role of leadership to some extent in the church. This is really important because we start talking again about the function and ministry of women. 
is incorrect to say they have no function at all. Mm. They have no position, they have no standing at all. Because the Bible clearly gives qualifications for the women who would be in those positions mm. of standing. Um, yes. I would say I, it makes me think, as far as when it says women's roles, we do have women's roles. I just want to say that over and over and over and over again. The first one I think of is Philip, um, who was an evangelist, and he had four daughters. And they said that they had the gift of prophecy or teaching God's word. That's just one prime example. I think of Ruth, Deborah, Naomi, Esther. All these women who are pro prominent women in the Bible, and they realize that, man, they had a role in God's church. And it's still the same today. I know that um, oftentimes we, um, I was raised going uh, to a Pentecostal church when I was growing up because my father was a, a Pentecostal minister. And so the role of the women were just to be ushers and uh, to cook meals um, and pretty much just the basic things. Um, and so that's what I grew up. But I realized that a lot of what I grew up was a lot of traditional things. And it wasn't necessarily the truth. And I like this discussion because I'm like, we are digging deep to find out what is the truth of God's roles for women in the church. And I think that that's what we need to really look at and not think that we don't have a role. We do. We just got to dig deeper and find it and be secure in that and, and what God has given us. And so um, just that's just examples of just women who are examples for us today and even um, even for, our, for the next generation that we do have an importance and we are worthy of respect. I know that I personally don't like being disrespected as a person um, but I feel like even as a woman I really fight um, to make sure that I'm respected and other women are as too but to really embrace my role as that and not um, be negative or um, slanderous towards men because we can definitely go down that route if we clearly don't understand the women's roles that God has given us from the Bible. Amen. Amen. So the the next two passages that I want to look at they, they begin to try to talk about some of these things. Like when we get in, we talk about how do we treat one another. For instance, First Timothy five one to twelve says, "Do not rebuke an older man harshly." but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So the way that we treat people is based in part on gender, but also on age. It's about respect uh, for individuals. Uh, first Timothy, second, I'm sorry, not first Timothy, but Titus chapter two, mm -hmm. verse one through six, also talks about how to treat one another. Paul gives Titus very specific direction that he needs to teach when he teaches different groups. He says in verse 1, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men, you know, the ones that you exhort as a father, to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and endurance. He said, likewise, teach the older women, whom we are to treat um, as mothers, to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then it says, they, in turn, will teach the younger women who, are we to treat, who we are to treat as sisters with absolute purity. Uh, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will align the word of God. Similarly, encourage the younger men to be self-controlled. These are the ones, again, that we treat as brothers. We see that based on age and gender, the specific treatment that needs to be given. 
All of these passages are very, very clear. Mm -hmm. This is where the difficulty comes in. The next passages are not clear. Mm -hmm. And I want to describe why. Mm -hmm. The verse that we read earlier on 1 Timothy 3 about elders and husbands, what it says, in the same way women are to be worthy of respect. The word there for women is gune. And gune in the Greek means wife and it also means woman. Interestingly enough, there are languages where wife and woman is the same word. Mm. What do we do there? We all know there's a difference between being a wife and being a woman. Just because you're a woman doesn't mean you're married to somebody. Yep. Right? So how do you apply a scripture that could go either way? Well, the way that you do it is when you translate it, you use the context of the passage to tell you what the definition of the word should be. And very often in our Bibles, and it's NIV is notorious for this, they take the general word and not the specific word mm -hmm. so they can say, hey, we're not in trouble. Mm -hmm. So, what do I mean by that? Well, there are times when the Bible says, when the, when the Bible says, but the wives, the women are to be this way. Is it talking about the wives of the deacons or is it talking about females who are deacons? We don't know. And if someone tells you that they can speak it with absolute clarity, I will tell you. I can read the Greek and you don't know. <laughs> you just don't know. And so we have to be very careful. Because if the Bible is not explicit, we have to also be willing to allow some freedom there. Yeah. I happen to think that God does allow freedom there because God is not a God of God is a God of order and out of disorder, but he also leaves wiggle room. He doesn't tell us how a church should be led. He doesn't say, this is how you structure your church. God says, lead, structure your church, go van, go in the world. Right? God gives us some freedom. The other problem comes in when we start looking at certain passages that talk about culture. One of the passages is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 to 16. I think this is a really interesting passage. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 to 16. All right. Someone will say, hey, women aren't allowed to speak in church. Didn't you read that passage I read earlier? And then I say, okay, well, no, that's actually, I understand you said that, but... Well, let's look at all the passages that talk about women. Here's a passage that says that when every man, who, um, every woman who prays and prophesies uh, in the church with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, and, and it's the same as having her head shaved, right? Well, I don't know what that second part means, but the first part clearly says that women pray and prophesy in church. And so you get off the hook on one verse. Women can't speak in church, right? They pray and they prophesy. And we know this because we can see in Acts chapter 1, when the apostles were all gathered together, all the believers were like 120 believers were there. There were men and women, they were all praying together. So we know that they did that. We can also see that Jesus' baptism was, uh, his birth was announced by a prophetess. So we know that women were prophets. We can also see, like Shan mentioned earlier, about uh, Philip, who had four daughters who prophesied, who were prophets. And so we're like, okay, I got that one. And it's okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Then what about this, this head covering thing? You know, I don't see anyone walking around here with head coverings on. So what about that passage? And you start to feel weird. Like, okay, am I just like backpedaling and trying to explain every passage? Well, no. What's important to understand is these passages are, are, are almost always written to deal with the situation at hand. Right? I wish Paul would just write a book, had written a book that says, this is my manual for starting a church. Oh, my gosh. I would be fired about that. He didn't leave us that. He wrote letters because there was a problem. He wasn't there to fix it. So he says, hey, 
Fix the, this this man fix the problem. Sometimes we say, when I come, I'll give you some somebody's literally say, when I come, I'll give you more direction. We're like, so what was the extra direction you gave? Here's the other problem. In Genesis 38, I mean, here's the other problem. The, what we know, we know that women in Corinth, Corinth was not a nice place, but that women in Corinth were using their freedom to express themselves in ways that were not healthy. This is not just in the church. This is like period. And very often they would throw off their head garments uh, as a way of expressing their femininity and say, hey, I am a woman to hear me roar, right? And so it was used in a way that to debase the authority that men had had over them at the time. And it said that we're our own authority. Mm-hmm. And so many oftentimes the argument can be, well, you have to understand what head coverings meant at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I says, well, what about right here says that, you know, well, you need to have a head covering. But then I said, well, look over in Genesis 38. Because in Genesis 38, verse 15, Judah slept with Tamar because she had a head covering. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, you have a head covering. That means you're a prostitute. So, am I a prostitute because I have a head covering? Mm. Or because I don't have a head covering? Mm. We need to be very careful about how we interpret the Bible. Yeah. When somebody tells you, tells you well, this is what I know, okay, I appreciate what you know, brother, brother man. <laughs> but you got to make sure you know the Bible. Mm-hmm. I, for one, know the Bible pretty well. All right? I've read the Bible 18 times in English. In three other languages, I've read the Bible in too. And I'm telling you, there's a lot that I don't know. There's a lot that that confuses me. So people come at me and they haven't finished about what once. I almost laugh in my heart. (laughs) There are some things that are very difficult to understand. So this is what I will say about that. The women were actively praying and prophesying in church. And the conditions in which they did so were done under the authority of male leadership. Purpose of that of the head gathering was simply to show that there was, a, there was a uh, there was a there was a leadership of a male that was present. Yeah. Now, then we do it differently, right? You know, my wife comes up to speak, and I'm right here. I'm reading the scriptures. I'm. You, she's not just saying, "Okay, there's not a lot of men in here, so I'm, let me take the mic. Let me tell you how the church needs to be read." Right? We all be like, "Whoa, ho, ho, this is getting scary." But it's important that we have that uh, that authority there because it gives a covering, it gives a covering to her. She is not open to all the, the attacks that would be pointed towards a leader mm-hmm. uh, because she's a woman and she's operating in that role mm-hmm. of serving and leading as a woman. It's important that we understand that because that authority rests with me as the male who's a leader. This this idea of correction exists in more than in just that place. For example. The other scripture that I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 35, where it says women should be silent in the churches. They should not be allowed to speak, but it must be a submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for women to speak at church. This is where we started, right? Here's my, here's my problem. Again, the word for woman and the word for wives is the same word. So should this be translated women? Absolutely not. It should be translated wives. How do you know that? Because the context, both before and after, he's talking about the men who are prophesying. That's the context of this passage. The other thing that's interesting is he says they should tell their own husbands at home. So what you're saying is that the wives should be silent, 
but the single sisters, the teen women, and the campus women, they can speak in church. Because if you don't have a wife, if you don't have a husband, then you can speak. Obviously, that's not what this passage is teaching. But people who want to follow it word for word, I said, let's go there. That means my wife can't say anything, but my daughter can stand up in church and she can say whatever she wants. We all know that that doesn't make any sense. And then, Consider the fact that this is this this passage is dealing with problems. Paul is trying to correct problems in the church. And what was a problem in the church? And we see this again and again is that there were a strong group of women who were out who were overshouting the speakers. Mm-hmm. It's like me coming to church and I'm doing a lesson and sister stands up. I disagree with that point. Am I okay, sister? Okay, one second. Let me just keep. And I keep going. Up, sister stands up. Hey, what do you think about that? Is that really the right interpretation of the passage? And I'm like, okay, I want to get the interpretation. And then our sister stands up. We're like, oh my goodness gracious, this is horrible. That was Sunday morning in Corinth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When he wrote the letter, he says, I want to have a broad sword. Don't say anything. Mm-hmm. When these guys are preaching, you ask your husbands at home if you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. But don't disrupt the order of the church. Yeah. The word here for silence is a word in the Greek that means stop talking. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, in 1 Peter, where the Bible says, but women in the past made themselves attractive by having a gentle and quiet spirit. Mm. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, where it says, a woman should learn in quietness and in full submission. Mm. It's a different word in the Greek. Mm. What? Yes. And that word is actually talking about demeanor. Mm. It's talking about attitude. A woman should have a gentle and quiet demeanor. A gentle and quiet attitude is not talking about volume, mm-hmm. but it's talking about having an attitude of, man, I'm really willing to be taught here. Mm-hmm. I really want to listen to what you have to say. Mm-hmm. I will respectfully ask questions when things are that I disagree with, or I'll bring my point across. But I'm going to do it in a way that can be listened to and can be respected, mm-hmm. not in a way that's disruptive mm-hmm. or that's counterproductive. Mm-hmm. We have to be very careful. Mm-hmm. Bible doesn't expect that women of God to be quiet, silent, docile preachers. No! We need the women of God to be just as powerful, just as fiery, just as strong, speaking the word of God. And in our assemblies, to put themselves under the submission of the leadership like everybody else who's there. But these are correctives. We have to understand them in that way. I know we're running out of time, but I just had to put this point here. Um, the way he was reading that passage was very strong. <laughs> to make you think, okay, yeah, that, that's what we believe in. We do believe that we need to, uh, the women need to be quiet. But it's a time and a place. The book of Corinthians, not only were the women out of order, the whole church was out of order, all kind of crazy stuff. And they needed to do something to say, look, let's, we got to get everybody in check. And women just happened to... Um, obviously be the target. Um, But it doesn't mean that we don't have a voice. It doesn't mean that we aren't heard in God's kingdom. We are. And there's a way to do it. But you got to make sure um, that it's in a respectful manner that represents God. And it's um, obviously, it's going to be heard. Like, definitely as a woman, I can get emotional. And I know that when I'm emotional, my husband, he just turns his ears off. God's going right down. But when I'm not, and I say it in a, in, a, in a manner that is worthy of respect and glorifies God, he hears this. 
And so I think it's just a matter of us learning that behavior and learning how to communicate so that our voices can be heard. God wants us to teach. He wants us to preach. He wants us to share the word powerfully. But we got to know that, you know what? Yes, it is right what you feel, what you feel may be correct, but it is how you are saying it. It is your presentation, it is your tone, it is your attitude, it is your eye, and that extra uh, what muscle in your neck, it's all of that. So we've got to make sure that, that, that the way that we come across that it glorifies God, so that not only is our voice heard, that God's voice is heard through it all. Amen. Amen. So last point here. Uh, this passage, the one here in 1 Timothy 2.8, seems to limit in some way how women, not just wives, speak in the church. However, this does not limit a woman's ability to teach. We know this because we saw that Paul gave direction to Timothy and Titus that the older women were to instruct the younger women. We see that Paul gave Paul in the life of Timothy was instructed by his mother and grandmother Lois and Eunice in the word of God. We see the teamwork between Priscilla and Aquila explaining to Apollos the word of God more accurately. And so we see again and again and again in the passages, women, prominent women, leading and speaking in many ways, teaching 